Some of you may remember, I think it was three weeks ago when I was first here, I set out kind of an outline that I wanted to cover this month. And I had this nice, clean, easy four message idea starting, uh, coming out of Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And it all was going to fit together real nice. The first Sunday, because it was Communion Sunday, we did the breaking of bread. And we looked at the Lord's Supper, the what and the why of the Lord's Supper. And then uh, we turned to fellowship. And it looks like that's about as far as we're going to get. Uh, there's just so much in this whole notion of fellowship. And it has endless implications for the church, for us as, as individuals as well. So just let me quickly review some of the things we've looked at the last two weeks. Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at eight points. The first four are what we could call the basis for true fellowship. The first point was fellowship is based on simply being together, just being together physically and regularly. It seems like such a self-evident point, but it's really a point where we can easily break down. Somebody once gave the analogy that it's kind of like a piece of tape. If you stick a piece of tape on your hand, you can tear it off and it hurts, it pulls the skin, it pulls the hair. But then if you take the same piece of tape and stick it on again and then pull it off again, it doesn't hurt quite as much. And then you do it again and it comes off more easily. And after a while, it just falls off. And it's a little bit what it's like about becoming lax with our fellowship with the body. It, it becomes easier to become lax with it. And so we want to be careful, we want to guard that. So we gather together regularly and then we gather together gladly because really it is a matter of the heart. Then the third point was it's rooted in brotherly agape love that God has given us. If you remember, uh, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. It says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And that's because, the fourth point, Jesus Christ has made us one in himself. He has done it. It's an accomplished reality, and fellowship is the manifestation of that. And like many other aspects in the Christian life, it has to be nurtured. It has to be actively lived out. Just like I'm sure we all know, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, Paul said, and it's both sides of this, Paul said, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the same goes for fellowship. And really, because of this, to not be engaged in fellowship and nurturing our fellowship, it undercuts what Jesus has done for us in making us one, and it undermines the love that he's given us for each other. We need to work it out. We need to live it out. So it's a matter of being faithful in fellowship, and it's a matter of being obedient to a very clear and repeated command to love one another. And then last week, uh, we looked a little bit more specifically, the next four points, is kind of what true fellowship does. And the first of those, point five, is that we share and we give our lives to each other. We serve one another, just like Jesus served and gave his life for us. Like him, like Jesus, we 
are to let ourselves be broken and kind of become like bread and that we give ourselves for the feeding and nourishment of each other as a body. And it's that kind of serving love, it's that kind of fellowship that demonstrates the supernatural love that we've been given. So it's, a, it's an unmistakable testimony when that's lived out that we belong to Jesus Christ and that his love is in us. And number six, we uh, share the spiritual gifts that he has given to each of us for the good of the body. Remember, 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each one has received a special gift. That's what it says. Each one has received a special gift. Employ it. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Paul told Timothy not to neglect the spiritual gift within him and to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in him. And if Jesus Christ, by his grace and his love, has granted to each of us gifts to use for the building up of his body, then is it not negligent to let them slide and to ignore them? So we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to the Lord by serving his body in the way that he equipped us to do. And then number seven, we looked at 28 examples of one another's that were to be engaged in. I'm sorry, the print's a little bit small, but there's just so many of them. These are not just recommendations. It's not just advice. These are directives. We are to be doing these things. And we remember that when Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, when he taught his disciples by example, by washing their feet, by stooping to that menial task of washing their feet, showing them how to humbly serve one another, he said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And then the last point. We saw that fellowship with each other and fellowship with Jesus Christ cannot be separated from each other. So that is, if our relationship with Jesus Christ is right, then our relationships with each other must be right. Because if our relationships with each other are not right, then our relationship with Jesus Christ cannot be right. And that's the point I'd like to expand on today and hopefully conclude with. Because there's many, many things that jeopardize the fellowship of the church. And other than neglect, which we've already touched on, the two major threats really are a breach in our relationship with God, and that's the vertical, and breakdown in relationships with each other, and that's the horizontal. There's no way around it that those two relationships directly affect each other. I can't understate how both our day-to-day -day relationship with God, not just Sunday morning, our day-to-day -day walk with God, our fellowship with God, and our day-to-day -day fellowship with each other are absolutely crucial to the life and to the well-being of the church. As a parent, I can get a little bit, I think, a little bit of insight into this. Both my kids, their relationship to me 
is very important to me. I mean, it would, it would hurt me to the core if they were deliberately disobedient or if they were rebellious or if they were deceitful or if they just didn't care about me. But you know what? Their relationships with each other are just as important to me. Um, I have their permission to say this. When they were younger, <laughs> like earlier this morning, uh, when, uh, yeah, when they were younger, when, when there would be bickering and arguing that would kind of flare up, life in the Penner household would come to a screeching stop. You guys remember that? Until that matter was resolved and everything, including attitudes, were set right. And all the I'm sorry's and that's okay's and all those things were said with, with an adequate degree of sincerity. And you know, usually the issue had nothing to do with me directly, but, but it was just as distressing. It was distressing for me just the same when they were fighting with each other. It mattered, it really did, and it still does, really. So I think if I can see that or feel that as a, as a deficient, imperfect parent, I think it helps me understand a little bit of how God might see us as his family except that he loves us in an absolutely perfect and holy love. You know, how much more important than just an anecdotal parental example like that when God actually tells us, he tells us in his word how important it is to him. In the clearest possible language, he tells us how important not only the vertical but also the horizontal relationships matter. And again, the life and the well-being, not of just the household, but the life and the well-being of the church body depend on this. You know, when the, when the Chinese government blows up church buildings in China, it actually strengthens the true church because the persecution of believers and the breaking down of a church building cannot bring down the true church. But sin in the lives of believers and breakdowns of fellowship, those things can bring down a true church. And we know that it's an important topic because the scripture is very pointed on it. It lays a very direct and heavy emphasis on it, a severe emphasis on this matter. And I have to say, Real-life experience and observation confirms that. I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned two books that I'd reread recently. You know, those two books, they really impacted me. I mean, they convicted me. And it really kind of impacted this whole message series, actually. And uh, one was about the church in Uganda. And uh, the other was on churches that underwent revival in China about a hundred years ago, is a book called By My Spirit, and it's interesting, that was one of the lines in our songs. By My Spirit, by a Canadian missionary to China, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. His name was Jonathan Goforth. Isn't that a great name for a missionary? Goforth. This is what he wrote in uh, the introduction to his book. Let me just quote this. He says, 
We cannot emphasize too strongly our conviction that all hindrance in the church is due to sin. It will be seen from the following chapters how the Holy Spirit brings all manner of sin to light. Indeed, the appalling fact is that every sin which is found outside the church is found also, although perhaps to a lesser degree, within the church. As to the sin against an individual, the scriptures are quite plain. And then he quotes Matthew 5, 23 and 24, and that's the verse that says, if you're presenting your gift, Jesus said, if you're presenting your gift at the altar, and there remember, when you're at the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering at the altar and go and first be reconciled with your brother then come and offer your offering. In other words, our relationships are more important than our offerings and our service. And then he continues, It is vain for us to pray while conscious that we have injured another. Let us first make amends to the injured one before we dare to approach God at either the private or the public altar. I am confident that revival would break out in most churches if this were done. There's so much scripture that we could quote on this, but I think just for the time we have today, I want to focus in on two passages. They're adjacent passages in Matthew 18. First little section is verse 15 to 17, and this is where Jesus addresses with how to deal with sin in the church, even though there wasn't really a church at that time as such. And then the second passage includes uh, some direct instructions and a parable. We'll get to that in a minute. So let's start here. Um, as long as we're living in these fleshly bodies, as long as we're living on earth now, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that we will fall short in many ways, and we will do wrong to each other. So let's read through this. I'll make a few observations along the way. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault. So I'm just going to stop there. We have a mandate to confront sin, whether it's his personal lifestyle or whether it's sinful habits or wrongs done against other people. There's enough scriptural examples and instructions to show us that unchecked sin, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the nation of Israel, it's a serious matter and it has to be dealt with. So if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So whatever the type of sin is at issue, the point is the first step is confidential and is a private encounter with the one who sins. And then, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So if he listens and responds and repents, you've won your brother. And the purpose then has been accomplished. Because the objective is not confrontation. The objective is repentance and restoration. And when that happens, the matter's over. It doesn't have to go any further. But you know, in all honesty, I think it's often at this first step that we fail. And I'm, I am just as guilty in this respect as anyone else. So often, so often, instead of going to the person in private we go to other brothers and sisters and we start spreading the matter 
around. We basically are short-circuiting the process. And the problem is we jump to step three, but it's a wrongly done step three. And really, more often than not, it just amounts to gossip. Private confrontation and admonishment are hard. It's hard. It's much easier to talk to other people. It's certainly juicier. It takes real, true love and discipline to approach the person himself. And it takes grace, and it takes wisdom, and it takes a love of truth to do this in a right way. And I've had my share of rebukes and admonishments in my own life. And there's two instances, actually, that stand out to me. They were both from missionaries here in Japan many years ago. And they were not missionaries connected with MCC. These are two different missionaries, different times, different situations. But both of them saw concern for some of my attitudes, which were kind of showing up in some of the things I was saying. They're evident in my words. You know, Jesus says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And that's true. And you know, those encounters were humbling. But afterward, afterward, I really appreciated those brothers, those missionaries who had the courage and the fortitude and the love to confront me with those things. Actually, one of those missionaries, he, he took me out for lunch to talk to me. And he, just, he did it in a way that just showed genuine concern and compassion. And by the way, his name was Ron Sisko. <laughs> Long before he came to MCC. And you know, actually, when I uh, talked to him about it you know, a few years ago, he really does not have a clear recollection of that. <laughs> but I have never forgotten it. I have never forgotten it. And I still appreciate him for doing that. He won me over. He won me over. Both those missionaries did. Anyways, let's continue. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That's step two. It's based on the Old Testament, you know, two witness principle from the Old Testament law. It basically brings on a bit greater pressure, and it still confines it to a very limited circle. And that's important. Let's go on. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So there we take it to step three. Not as gossip, not as talking behind the person's back, but laying out the facts so that the church leadership and some members of the church family can compassionately and lovingly plead with the individual to repent and return. And then, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, at that point, you need to put him out of the body. That's the last step, and it really is for adamantly unrepentant people until he can genuinely repent and return. We always want to keep that hope alive because that's the objective in every step. The objective in every step is repentance and forgiveness and restoration full restoration. But for the good of the body, for the health of the body, the person must be removed. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5. There was a 
man living in open immorality. And Paul uh, mentioned to them, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He's not talking about bread. He's talking about leaven. Leaven is often used to symbolize sin in the scripture and the way that it spreads. And that's why the Passover uses unleavened bread. Paul is basically saying that sin in the church body will affect and will influence others in the body. And it either needs to be repented of or removed. If I could, at this point, just give a word of caution, maybe. You know, the seriousness of this process underscores, I think, that this is for dealing with actual sin. This is for dealing with biblically defined sin. It's not really about personal annoyances or, you know, people's irritating quirks or uh, things which, which we all exhibit. I mean, come on. Uh, different ways, different degrees. So it's not about, you know, you forgot my birthday last week. I rebuke you. I mean, okay, you need to repent. Okay, unless, unless they skipped your birthday to deliberately spite you. Okay, that's a sin issue. But uh, we just need to remember that along with the mandate to admonish one another and to correct one another, we also have a mandate to bear with one another and to show tolerance for one another. It was in that long list we had up before. So there's many, many times where it's better just to be gracious and to overlook a matter, to let it go, unless you see things, you see attitudes underlying it that will become problematic or harmful to the church body if it's left unchecked. So, do we have the fortitude? Do we have the courage to do the right thing? and to do things in the right order, not to skip steps. Can we check our hearts to make sure that our motive is love and that we are seeking to win our brothers and our sisters to righteousness and that we're not doing them harm by talking behind their backs or spreading information about them that is damaging to them especially before they've been given a chance to address it or to make corrections. And again, restoration and forgiveness are what we should hope for, not the destruction of a person. We need to grasp, we need to understand, we need to take to heart how much importance Scripture places on forgiveness. And it's not just us being forgiven by God, but it's us forgiving one another. God is by nature forgiving. It's one of his most wonderful attributes for us as humans because it's the only reason the human race has any hope at all. When the Lord passed before Moses, this is how he declared himself. He declared, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet he does not by any means leave the guilty unpunished. So it's just with that context, let's continue on. A few verses down in Matthew 18, down to verse 21. 
And here's Peter. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jewish tradition at this point had kind of settled on the principle that forgiving three times was adequate. And the fourth time, the offended person could withhold forgiveness. It was kind of the uh, rabbinic tradition. So Peter probably thought he was being pretty generous by uh, suggesting seven times. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Obviously, he's not talking about a higher finite number. The point was that forgiveness is to be unlimited. And then he told this parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now that's not 10,000 yen. It's 10,000 talents. And 10,000 talents in this context was basically an incalculable number. And just to put it in perspective, Roman tax records from this time, the annual tax revenue in one year, the tax revenue for the whole region of Palestine, the whole region of Palestine was about 900 talents. So what Jesus is talking about here would have been more than 10 times that amount. So the point is, it's just far beyond what any individual would ever be able to repay. So Jesus said, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. I mean, even that would never have covered the monetary debt. There's no way. He and his family just weren't worth that much. But it was justice. It was just. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. You know, it's a nice offer, it's a nice thought, but it is totally impossible. But then we see this. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Just like that. Released, forgiven, free. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, this is a fellow slave. It's not a subordinate. It's not his employee. And a hundred denarii is about four months wages for an average laborer. Not a small amount but it's within the possibility of repayment. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. You know, when the king acted, the king was going to have him sold into slavery. He was acting out of justice. But this, this was just mean. It was, it was vicious and it was physically violent. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. It's almost exactly the same wording as the first slave had said to the king. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. 
And you know, that shows that his cruelty, his viciousness even overrode his common sense. How could someone in prison pay back a debt that otherwise he would have been able to repay? So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, that unpayable debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? In other words, did you gain nothing from the infinite mercy and grace that you received? Are you that self-centered and ungrateful and vindictive and revengeful over a much, much smaller debt? And when we have the proper perspective on things, this is basically the situation. When we hold on to resentments over wrongs that others have done to us, the truth is that they have wronged God who gave them and who sustains their life more than they have wronged us. Yes, we may be a victim of their sin in the same way that others are victims of our sin. But in truth, all sin is first an affront to God and God's holiness. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, when he was confronted, David's first confession out of his mouth was, I have sinned against the Lord. And then we see in Psalm 51, when we see the whole confession written out, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And that's why we are commanded to never take our own revenge. Because it says, and I'm not sure if we've really grasped this, but it says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Lord doesn't just reach down and take vengeance. Vengeance belongs to Him. But more to the point here is do we grasp, do we understand how much God has forgiven us? Do we understand that Jesus said, to him who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. Do we know how much we have been forgiven? What kind of a debt did God set us free from? We owed him a debt we could never repay, not even with our eternal soul. We could not repay that debt. But you know, there's something else actually that this parable does not include. Jesus made his parables very pointed, but you know, if we expand the parable out, we could truthfully say this, that what it actually cost the king to forgive this debt, the king didn't just discount 10,000 talents and just write it off the books, but the payment for that 10,000 talents would have cost the life of the king's own son. And that's the reality that we live in.
And so it says, Should not you also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Because we have received grace, we are to give grace. Because we have received forgiveness, we are to grant forgiveness. And because we have received gifts, we are to share those gifts. Jesus said, freely, freely you have received, freely give. Besides, because we belong to God and because Jesus Christ actually lives in us by his Spirit, we should be reflecting his character. If I could just quote uh, from John MacArthur in his commentary on this section of Matthew, I think it's very apt. He writes, Forgiveness reflects the highest human virtue because it so clearly reflects the character of God. A person who forgives is a person who emulates godly character. Nothing so much demonstrates God's love as his forgiveness. A person who does not forgive is therefore a person lacking in godly character and without Christ-like love, no matter how orthodox or how outwardly impeccable his own morals are. An unforgiving Christian is a living contradiction of his new nature in Christ. It is central to the heart of God to forgive, and only the Christian who radiates forgiveness radiates true godliness. So when Jesus told us to love our enemies, earlier in Matthew, he said, not only your reward will be great, but he said, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The Lord's Prayer. We know it is the Lord's Prayer. Actually, the Lord's Prayer really is found in John 17. This is the disciples' prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This is the one from Matthew. Most of us, I'm sure, can recite it by memory. But look at this one line, verse 12. This is important enough that it's embedded in this short prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. As we also have forgiven. That's a declaration of a completed action. And you know, when we recite this prayer, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't declare this to the Lord as a prayer falsely. If I could just note this too, this line, this verse 12 line, is the only specific line in this prayer that warranted additional commentary following the prayer. So following in verse 14, Jesus said, both in positive and negative, he said, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I don't know how it could be stated any more clearly or strongly than that. 
we are to be known to the world both as people who are forgiven and those who are forgiving. So how much more imperative is it that we who are the recipients of God's ongoing grace and forgiveness, that we extend ongoing grace and forgiveness, especially to family members and to fellow brothers and sisters in the church body. Let's finish out this parable here. And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. This is a severe thing. And then Jesus said, and this is the application, and we need to remember that Jesus was talking to his disciples, and this whole parable is in the context of the kingdom of heaven. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother. And then don't miss the last three words, from your heart from your heart. So this is not a matter of just glossing things over or kind of smoothing over the surface or operating, dare I say, in a tatemai mode. If we allow resentment and bitterness to fester under the surface, because surface fellowship is not true fellowship. It's superficial, and it's fake. And that's why 1 Peter 1.22, we looked at 1 Peter 1.22 the last three weeks, talks about us having a sincere love of the brethren and that we should fervently love one another, do you remember, from the heart. The Lord looks at our heart. He knows our hearts. And superficial fellowship doesn't fool him for one second. And it certainly does not produce spiritual fruit of fellowship. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It hinders spiritual power. And not just that, it actually ruins true fellowship. So Hebrews 12.15, again, very strong. See to it. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many, many be defiled. And that's what happens, that bitterness, even at the root level, it spreads and it affects others and it destroys true fellowship. So 1 Peter 4.8, again using the same word, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. We looked at this passage last week. Let's finish out with this again. This is 1 John 1, 3-9. The Apostle John wrote, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And then he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that is both because our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and our fellowship is with each other, one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Which means, of course, yes, we will all be wrestling with sin as long as we're in these bodies. But, verse 9, and this one is wonderful, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, as a church body, all of the things that when we walk in the light, those things which have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we have no right, we have no right to hold on to those things in each other. It's an affront to the blood of Jesus to do that. Just one more thing, if I could, if I could just mention this as we close. You know, the book about the Ugandan church, the fellowship of leaders in that church, how they learn to practice three things. Repentance and confession to the Lord and to each other. They took James 5.16 literally, that you confess your sins to one another. And being broken, like we were talking about with bread being broken, being broken toward the Lord and toward each other. And then walking in the light, walking in the light with the Lord and with each other. And when I put that book next to the book about the revivals of the churches in China, it was unmistakable, side by side, different eras, completely different eras, different continents, different cultures, but the same basic issues, the same basic struggles, and then the same conviction of sin and the same repentance and the same forgiveness and the same restored fellowship and the same outcome, the same outcome. Do you know what the outcome was? It wasn't just joy of fellowship. The outcome was incredible and powerful evangelism 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 that brought many many people to salvation not through seminars not through programs not through bringing in parachurch organizations as much as we appreciate them but these were local churches by the power of the holy spirit free to work 
through them. So it's not only the depth and the quality of our fellowship, it's also the power of our ministries. It's the power of our ministry as a church that's directly connected to what degree we are walking in the light and that we're confessing our sins and that we're forgiving one another and living in true fellowship with each other. If our fellowship with God and each other is unhindered, our prayers will be unhindered, God's work will be unhindered, and even our joy will be unhindered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that it speaks truth to our hearts. And by your spirit, Lord, I pray that your word would penetrate with conviction where it needs to. And Lord, that we as a church, we as individuals, would yield to the Holy Spirit and surrender and walk in the light and have true fellowship with you and have true fellowship with one another, that we as a church would bear fruit together. Lord, we sing that song, that they will know we are Christians by our love. Let us work with each other, let us work side by side, walk with each other, walk hand in hand. But Lord, may we bear fruit together. And we know that that pleases you. So I ask, Lord, that you would prune us, draw us close to yourself, that we may walk in the light. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.